People are rolling, rolling in here pretty slow today. Trying to pace me. But I'm going to take control of this classroom. Let's go, guys. Come on. Let's, let's get in here. Let's get these doors shut. Even Pastor Kevin is in here late. Uh, yeah, well, he can't hear me, but he's still out there. But we're going to start without him. And uh, if you'll bow in prayer, let's get started correctly. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. You are worthy of our praise. We will clearly see this today from your word, which tells us about you. And because of that, we praise you for your word. Without it, we wouldn't know. Without it, we would speculate. Without it, we would come up with our own ideas, just as man does when they don't seek the truth from your word. Today, we will see clearly who you are, why you're worthy, and why that solves every problem we have. We praise you for that. We thank you for the word that you're giving us today. We thank you for what we will have in hour number two as we progress through John into chapter 15. We thank you for the beauty of the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, we ended, we got through one verse, one verse, and it took us 50 minutes to get through that one verse, but it set us up. And I'm not going to review that. However, what I do want to do, if you remember this seven-sealed scroll, this, uh, this is making me nervous. I wonder if you guys have the right, yeah, this is not the right um, set of slides. He's switching them out. But what I want you to do while he's switching them out is go to Romans chapter 8. That's where we ended last week, if you recall. As you turn to Romans chapter 8, I want to bring back to your mind what Revelation 5 chapter 1 established for us, that there is a document that is what we argued is the title deed for the earth, that as of right now, we know that the God of this world, Satan himself, is roaming around seeking whom he may devour. He is in, he's, he's captivating people's minds with what they want, by the way. Their own sinful desires have drawn them to the lies that Satan spews out and has been for generations. And he has allowed that for just a moment. And, and we may think, a moment, this is thousands of years, how could it? But when you consider, when you consider the length and breadth of eternity, it is just for a moment that God has allowed this in his sovereignty. I can see that our, our slides are correct now. And this just for a moment, we've seen this time, but remember who's holding this scroll, this title deed. It's in the Father's hands. He's in full authority. But where we left off last week, where we ended, I think is a good place to start. We're going to pick this up at verse 18, where we left off. So Romans chapter 8, we're, we're kind of our condition. This will help us lead into what we're talking about this week. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8, 18. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies that is the condition of everyone in here it's the condition of the creation around us the place that we live in it is the condition of everyone who doesn't even understand the gospel or believes in it eternity's been put in the hearts of men they, they don't understand what they need, but they're groaning towards something. They, they need it, and they don't realize what it is that will satisfy that. That's a real problem, and it's a real problem and an emotion that we're going to see kind of play out today in our text, even with John. And I think it's a fascinating thing if, if I can re- bring to your remembrance the situation that we're in here. When John is taken to heaven... He is in a very unique situation because John is taken there, I believe, in spirit. His physical body is not there. It's it's still corrupted. It's a sinful body. He's not in a glorified state as we are when we're in this situation. And he still struggles with the pain and the suffering and the difficulty of this world. And so I want you to keep that in mind as, as we go forward into this text and as we engage with the text and we'll see that this is... This is going to be part of the issue for John, but it relates to us because that's where we are right now, aren't we? We're in this world, this fallen world. We're groaning for this fulfillment, for the, for the, for the culmination of things, for the hope that we all hold to. And I'm going to bring up next, a little later in this, in, in this lesson today that we also should remember what it was like when we didn't have that hope and the difference Man, that should, that should adjust our attitude a little bit, but we'll get to that later. If you recall, this is kind of the breakdown I have for these verses. We got this one done last week. We're going to get these done this week. But here's, here's what we want to see, is this is just a layout for us, a general layout. I came up with these terms. They aren't, they aren't divine in any way, but it, it's, it's kind of a progression. You see this progression as it plays out. So I think it would be good to read this text full through again. So let's go to Revelation chapter 5, 1 through 7, and we'll read through the text again so that we kind of remember where we are, the setting, where we're at. And of course, this is a scene in heaven. This is one of a few different interludes where Revelation gives us a scene in heaven, what's going on in heaven. Other times in Revelation, the bigger chunks are what's happening on earth during God's judgment, but this is a scene in heaven. So chapter 5, verse 1 Let's read through seven. Then I saw in the right hand of him who who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, that title deed that we made that argument of last week to the earth. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What a great text that we have here. So let's transition to verse 2. Verse 2 says, as we look at it again, 
I saw a strong angel, I'll bring this up here, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? A question, a proclamation. And when we look at this problem, and he is, he is posing this problem, it is his job to proclaim it. And uh, this is what we see here. When we look at this particular text, it's, it's interesting to consider some of the elements here. We see, first of all, a strong or mighty angel mentioned. Now, oftentimes we have names given to the angels. Here, it's, it's, it's not given a name. The, the angel is not given a name. However, some of your commentaries, some of your Bibles might even have a little side note that says, it's possible that this is Gabriel. The reason we get to that is really because of the, the meaning of the name Gabriel, which is strength of God or God's strength. And so that's a possibility. I don't really lean that way simply because angels are named. Oftentimes they're named when we know their name. And either it's not him or God doesn't want us to know that it's him, and it doesn't matter. What, it, what does matter is it's a mighty angel. Now I'm going to bring this around later, but we're going to see a couple examples of just how mighty these angels are in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 22. You'll see what I mean when we get there. There's a, there's a reason I'm going to bring those up later. They're awesome. They're created beings, but they are impressive. And I think what he's seeing is just without describing, as he did earlier, the living creatures, potentially the, the seraphim, cherubim, or a different type of breed of angel, they're incredible to see. And this angel has one job here in this case, and he is proclaiming a truth or proclaiming a question that is true, a question that needs to be answered. That's a good way to say it. It needs to be answered. Uh, from uh, the, the Precept Austin commentary, I picked this up. I saw a strong angel proclaiming, you can see the Greek words here, with a loud voice. Notice loud in voice, megaphone, which is where we get megaphone. He's literally, it's almost as if he's projecting it loud. It's where we get that word, that term. The strong angel has a big megaphone. He had to proclaim loud enough for the entire universe to hear. Proclaiming, Caruso, pictures the strong angel crying out. Continually, by the way, that's the idea of the present tense there. Like an ancient town herald, hear ye, hear ye. Like the ancient herald, the angel who would just pass along the message he had, he had been given. In other words, the angel was not allowed to add his comments, not his commentary. It's just, what, what's going on here? Who is worthy? This is the question. He's not answering it. He's proclaiming, this is a problem. And it is a problem that has to be, it, it's, it really gets to the heart of the matter here. And I want to pause in the middle of this quote. Because this is the question that every sinner has to really answer, right? Because if you think you're worthy to satisfy your sins and to gain your salvation, you've answered this question wrong. But you have to ask that question, don't you? Who is worthy to take back what we messed up, to fix, to make right what we made crooked? Who's worthy? It's a very good question. It's an eternal question, isn't it? It's one that every man has to ask. It's one that is being given here. But who is worthy to do this? Who's worthy to make this right? In other words, the angel was not allowed to add his comments, but simply tell it like it is. It's also worth noting that the strong angel was not strong enough to open the sealed scroll. We'll get to that later. 
Some speculate that the strong angel may have been Gabriel, for that name means strength of God, but since Scripture doesn't identify him, neither should we. And I agree with him there. I, I think that we should just let that be. It's a strong, impressive angel, but he's asking that question, who is worthy of this? Who can make things right? Who can make things right for the world, but specifically for you, the reader, who can make it right for you? Who can make it right for you? So Revelation 5.3, let's look at that again. That's the question, verse 3. And it says this, and I'll bring it up on the screen. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Well, that's tough. So the question was laid out, and the answer is nobody. There's nobody. This is what's given to us here, this one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. This is what we call a merism. And that's a fancy term for essentially giving us kind of the poles, what's in between. So a merism, it's a, a kind of a literal device that uses a, a list, an abbreviated list, as you see from this particular uh, definition that I used uh, when I was talking, uh, when we were doing apologetics. But it says the most common type of merit, it cites a pole from one end to the other. So everything in between. So if you look back at our text, one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, what we're trying to get here, what, the, what John is trying to, to get across to us, but what the Holy Spirit is trying to get across to us is in the entire created universe, no one is found worthy. Not one. The most common thing we see, we often see this in the Old Testament, from Dan to Beersheba, that's all of Israel. So that's an example of it that we see. So this is a problem. This is a real problem. The search is on and no one is worthy. Now that doesn't surprise us when we look at this. Angels aren't worthy. I mentioned that angels are awfully impressive. And even as we get to the end of this book, look at, look at how impressive. This kind of, we'll get to this much, much later when we're in Revelation 19. But if you look at the text, look at what John wants to do with this particular angel that's speaking to him. Look at this. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's an incredible thing we'll discuss and, and look into much later. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Look at what John does to this angel. I fell down at his feet to worship him. That's how impressive this created being was that John thought, I need to worship him. And he says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. This angel, who's extremely impressive, so much so that John thought he should worship, he's not worthy. He's not worthy. Another angel, Revelation 22, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard it, I saw them. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Look at that reaction again from this angel. This angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the word of his book. Worship God. Whether or not these are the same angel, it's hard to say. They're impressive, but they're not worthy. They're incredible. They've got things that, talents and abilities that you and I couldn't even dream of right now, but they're not worthy. They're not worthy to, to do what has to be done to make things right. Impressive, yes. So impressive that some of them wanted to be worshipped and thought that they were worthy. Satan in particular and a third of the angels. And they've desired for men to worship them ever since, but they're not worthy. And every false religion isn't worthy. So things in heaven aren't worthy. That's clear. We see that, but neither are we. 
Humans aren't worthy. I think you know Psalm 53. Here's what it says. As it is written, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless, not even one. That's Romans 3. Psalm 53, very similar text. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Very similar text. This is where Paul is drawing from in Romans 3 that I just read. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. All fall short as well. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not one. Humans aren't worthy. Look at the second verse here, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All of us. None of us are worthy. Satan's not worthy. And those who listen to him are certainly not worthy. Humans aren't worthy. Angels aren't worthy. And from last week, remember these two passages. The God of this world, look at this text. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So he's not worthy, we're not worthy, we're following after him, and we were all in this category, by the way. All of us were in this situation. It was veiled to all of us at one time. None of you, none of you became a Christian by osmosis. None of you were kind of graduated into it. You didn't, you didn't get born as a Christian. We were all in this situation, and we weren't worthy, and we couldn't save ourselves, and we couldn't make things right. This is what we saw from last week. This is very clear. No one is worthy, and this is a real problem. That's the issue going on here. And so as we think about this, it shouldn't surprise us that John's reaction here is grief. It shouldn't. It shouldn't surprise us. If we look at the text again, look at John, or excuse me, Revelation 5, verse 4, look at John's reaction to this. I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Now this may confuse you because you might be thinking, listen, John the Apostle, who was given revelation from the Lord, he, he's the, he walked and talked with Christ, he heard his teaching, he saw Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration, he should know. But remember how I set this up. John's still in his sin nature, isn't he? John in his spirit is here, but John is still living in the world that we live in which is full of sorrow, sin, immorality. I mean, it's, it's bad now, but it was bad then too. Think about what John had seen up to this point. John had watched his own brother be killed. He'd seen all of his fellow apostles executed for, and, and brutally executed for the name of Jesus Christ. He sees sin prevailing, and he, in his mind, keep in mind, John didn't know when the Lord was going to return. The imminent return of Christ has always been on the hearts and minds of, of believers. And he's thinking now, in his 90s, what's going on? What's going on? And you think, how could he doubt like that? And I'm not saying it's doubt, but how could his mind go that way? Well, before you start judging John, let's look at your own life. Do you know the promises of God? Have you read them? Are we to read them every day? And sometimes we do, and yet... Do you find when things don't go well here, and they often don't, that you begin to struggle and you begin to have sorrow and you begin to, to be, maybe not doubt Jesus, but think, what's going on, God? I thought or I wish or I want. And our timing, his timing and our timing aren't the same. 
And in our sin nature, we struggle. And we want there to be a conclusion, a fulfillment. And I think that's what's going on here. Notice the Greek here. It's loudly weeping. The reason he uses this is it was audible. It was, it was something that was distinct. Now we have other examples of this. We see this here. Peter, when he denied Christ. This is one of the more startling. It's the same Greek here, by the way. When Peter denied Christ, and the Luke account is the one that kind of grabs me the most, and maybe it does for you too. Jesus told him this would happen. He told him he would deny him. Peter said, there's no way, maybe all those guys, but not me. And when, he, when it all happened, he said this, and he, it, says, it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Does that give you chills? Because you may say, I'd never... I'd never cowered out and not talk about Jesus. I would never not bring up his name if that opportunity arose. And that you may have found yourself saying, I don't think I'm going to bring him up in this conversation. I don't think it's a good time for that. I don't think I'm going to say anything about being a Christian. I don't think I'm going to mention his name. And you know he's looking right at you. He watches everything we do. And he cares about you. The Holy Spirit's within you. And he's prompting you to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, the good news that you hold, and he's looking right at you. Just think about that personally. But what was his reaction to that failure? Because that's a definitive sin, right? What was his reaction? Same words. He wept out loud. He mourned for his own sin. He, He mourned for his own failure. He mourned because Peter knew he wasn't worthy, but... The one who he denied was, and he understood it. So there's something to that. There, there's a depth to that. And I'm going to make another connection here in a moment. But um, I came across a great explanation of this sorrow that John was feeling at this moment. And keep in mind, this is all happening in the eternal, and I can't, you know, can't relate to that because I've never been taken to heaven in the spirit before. So it's hard to kind of connect, but it's all progressing for John, and it's, I think in God's providence, he is laying this out for John to see in order. But this is an interesting commentary. Now, I know that's small, and it's long. I was talking to Mindy about this, and I said, this particular commentary is an old one. This is from 1962. And I I tend to lean to some of these. You know, we think that we got everything figured out nowadays. I think some of these old commentaries have a depth of understanding that And they take their time with this, and it's a little wordy, but I think it helps give us an understanding of this. And this was, you know, this was written before my my day, but it's an excellent understanding, in my opinion, of this text. Here's what it says. Talking of John's tears, these represent the tears of all God's people through all centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden. Keep in mind, because of our sin. You'll see that theme. As they they, uh, bowed over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent still from their son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery because of their sin, keep in mind. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and the tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience the trials of suffering of life, heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid on God's beautiful creation. 
and this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurp the interloper, that in, the intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And John wept audibly for the failure to find a redeemer because it meant that this earth and its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that the death and sin and damnation and hell should reign forever and ever, and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. Yeah, that gives us a good understanding of those tears. But notice that focus because of that sin. Who's going to fix that? Who's worthy of that? We know the angels aren't. We know we aren't. And you know, you think, John should know. He's seen Jesus. He saw him resurrect. But just like John the Baptist, he has those moments where John sent his apostles and disciples. Are you really the Christ? This is the same God that said the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right there. We have those doubts too. And John, still having that sin nature, he's in the midst of believers who are glorified that get it. He doesn't quite get the whole thing yet. He doesn't quite have that sin nature removed. And that's what he's weeping about. But there's one other aspect to this that I think we need to apply to our lives right now. And I take this from James 4. How about your sin right now? We know how Peter reacted when he realized Jesus looked right at him. Jesus was physically there when, when Peter failed him. But what about when we fail? How do you look at your own sin? Look at how the text here, by the way, same Greek word. Very interesting when we look at this. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is about resisting temptation. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. About what? Your sin. About what you are. And what Christ did for you. Last week, we, we, we shared together in the Lord's Supper. Why do we do that? What are we remembering? What Christ did for us. Our condition and what he did and what he had to do. The shedding of blood was necessary for the remission of sins, but it had to be a perfect sacrifice. The God of all glory and power and might left the beauty and an incredible situation that he was in in heaven and came down to earth for us. That's what we remember and what we are to do is mourn and weep over our own. We should be that troubled by our own sin. And, and notice, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. All right, so you see the situation. This is bad. And humans need to see that their situation is bad. There needs to be an answer, and I'm not it. And there's no other God that is, small case G. There's no other answer but then good news is starting to happen. Look at the next verse, Revelation 5. Now we pick it up, verse 5. And one of the elders, one of us, one Christian, some Christian is going to have a conversation with John. It's a mind-blowing situation. We are looking forward into heaven. We are going to see this. Some Christian, I believe, if we believe that the, that the elders are representing the church, is going to talk to John the Apostle. And he's going to say this to him. I love it. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's look at this a little closer. And I think when, before we do, I, I want to kind of analyze a little bit of what this guy is saying. But before we transition into that, I'd like you to quickly turn to Lamentations 
and I think this will help us a little bit. Lamentations chapter 3. You probably know where I'm going with this. The condition of man and the consistency of our God. Okay, that, that's where I'm going to go with this. But go to Lamentations chapter 3. Keep your finger in Revelation. We'll come back there. But I think this will help us a little bit. And you know what I've said about this, this study of ours. It should draw us back to the Old Testament. I think a very similar sentiment we're going to see here. Now, as you turn to Lamentations 3, I want you to consider this is a follow-up to Jeremiah's prophecy. And it's a follow-up after what Jeremiah prophesied happened. He had warned the people that Nebuchadnezzar was coming, judgment was coming. They were going to be overthrown because of their idolatry, because of their sin. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Sounds a lot like what we see happening here in Revelation. God's warned us that his judgment is coming. He's given us this information. Jeremiah is a faithful prophet. They called him the weeping prophet. So I think it's kind of interesting. We see him crying throughout, and he's giving the heart of of our God for us. Christ lamented and cried over Jerusalem. Same, by the way, Greek word. We didn't get into that, but very similar Greek word anyway of crying out loud. He has a heart for us. But it's going to show us the condition of our world. The reason the world is this way is because of us. And this is you and I too, not just the people of Israel or Judah at this time. And then look at this transition. So just a couple texts here. Verse 1 of chapter 3, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Things are bad down here because of my sin. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. You you can read on. This just continues, but I'm going to skip ahead. Verse 16, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made my, me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. This world can really bring you to this. I want you to think of John here. He is in captivity on the island of Patmos. And why? Because he's doing the Lord's will. Because he's doing what God asked him to do. And what's his reward? Pain, suffering, imprisonment, persecution. And that's coming our way too, by the way. If you follow the Lord's will, if you do what he calls you to do, your, your reward for that may be a little like how Joseph's life went. He did what God called him to do, and he became a slave. He did what God called him to do, and he got falsely accused and went to prison. And we don't know how that all will end, but that was all part of God's will. But look at how this transitions. Verse 18, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. Okay, this is like chapter 5, verse 5. But this I call to mind, and this is so important, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we could continue on to encourage ourselves with this. In the darkest moment Jeremiah could think of, he is reminded by God himself, a prophet hearing directly from the Lord, but our God is who we hope in. An incredible thing. An incredible thing. Now, this elder, this member of the church, he already knows all this. He's glorified. He doesn't have a sin nature. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's been there for a while. He's already been raptured. He's seen all of these promises come true, and he's, he's enjoying the fellowship 
with other believers and the Lamb, and how long we don't know. And notice how he says this. He, he says this for this reason. Well, I'm skipping ahead right here. Right here, he says, weep no more. And notice the, 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 how he says it. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. It's really, the text actually says, not you wail anymore. That's kind of a funny way to say it. Don't do that anymore. It's an imperative mood in Greek, which means it's a command to stop weeping. It's a command to, because he knows better. This guy has seen it, and he knows. He's reminding John of what John knows. And have, have we had that happen to us every once in a while? Somebody just starches us a little bit with the truth of God's word. Says, no, 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 that's not how it is. Remember what God's word says. Remember his promises. We need that, don't we? There are times where fellow believers have to do that to us. And God's word always does that to us. But we oftentimes don't want to hear it that way, but that's the way it is. Weep no more. Stop this. You know the truth. Because remember what we saw last week. Remember what pastor taught? He exegeted this passage for us, and I, I was so juiced up. I told him after this, I think I need to teach my Sunday school class right now. Remember John 14? He has no claim on me. Don't you forget the salvation that comes through Christ and how the ruler of this world, he's got nothing on Jesus. It gave me chills when he was preaching that. I was just like, this is awesome. That's my Savior. He's got nothing on me. Don't forget that. Weep no more. We have a victor. We have a conqueror. And he is the winner forever. And he's, he's going to cast out this ruler, John 12. The ruler of this world is going to be cast out permanently. He's got nothing on me, Jesus says. Amazing, right? Weep no more. This is true. Now, we're going to have this ex incredible experience, and we're going to know this, but we're just like John right now, aren't we? We're in this world for the moment, struggling, still fighting, and still forgetting. Because that's what we do. We forget. We forget about the truths of God's word. We forget about this passage that Pastor took us to last week. We forget about the Savior that we have and what's going on here. The reason I bring this up is because I want you to notice the connection to some of those same words that we heard earlier about who's worthy and where we can find him. You know the text, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God-man, the God of the universe, humbled himself to do this. Notice, for this reason, because he did that, he is worthy. As we transition into verse 6, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Notice the text here, connecting it to where the search was going out to, between heaven and earth and under the earth, for that reason, because he did this, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow where? Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Huh, have we heard that already before? Why is the one we're going to read about that is articulated by this follower of Christ who's glorified could be one of you if you get that opportunity to talk to John? You're going to say, I already know what I'm supposed to say because I've read this before. You're going to know this is true, and you're going to be doing it. You're going to be bowing right before him, casting your crowns at his feet. How cool is that? I think he intentionally wants us to connect to this passage. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see where this is going. You can see why this elder says, stop it. Here's the truth. This is the truth. This is who we serve. We got one who's worthy. And here's what he says. 
Here's why he's worthy. If you go back to Revelation, we've read it already, but just to get it again, why is this guy worthy? Yeah, we see from Philippians 2 he's worthy because he's God and he came down to earth and because of that, everywhere, everyone's going to, but he gives some specifics. Let's get back to the text. Let's get engaged with this text again. The elder said to me, weep no more. Stop your weeping. No more weep. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Later on, we're going to see him called the lamb as well. So here's what we got. Lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David, one who is conquered, and then later on in the text, we see one as a lamb in verse 6. These four things he gives, and there are more, but in this short period of time, in this short conversation, this glorified church member, this glorified believer, tells John, here's why and you know why. It's kind of interesting because John's already written about some of this, right? John already knows this, but he's reminded of it. So let's start with the tribe of Judah. Why does that matter? The lion of the tribe of Judah. I've always liked that term, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It sounds impressive, but it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy that had to happen. I've talked about this many times and in different lessons and in different sermons, but it's pretty incredible when you start looking at the odds of one man fulfilling all of the prophecies about the Messiah like Christ has. The odds are beyond actual numerical understanding. I think I've given you this illustration before, but it, 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 it bears repeating, it begs repeating here, because if Jesus, and there are something like that he has already fulfilled, something like 360 plus specific prophecies that Christ has already fulfilled. If he just, one man just fulfilled eight of those, it's like taking a silver dollar or actually having Texas, Pastor Texas, filled two feet high with silver dollars. So you can envision that if you can. And something, being able to pick up all of Texas, you're going to have to have that marking one of those silver dollars, throwing it in there, pick up Texas and shaking it up, and then have somebody pick that just one silver dollar out of there, and they happen to pick the one that got the mark on it. That are the, that's the odds of one guy fulfilling just eight of the specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to be the Messiah. He's giving us a few here. There are hundreds of them, but these are specific. He does these again to draw us back to the Old Testament, and what does it say in Genesis 49? From Judah, from this specific place, from this specific tribe, rather, this is where the Messiah has to come from. Let me read it to you. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Keep in mind, that's setting the stage for what he's about to do. Neck on your enemies. Judah is a lion's cub. From prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. There will always be a king from Judah. Never depart, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is all future. It's all yet future. Christ has come. He's from the line of Judah. He has sacrificed himself for our sins, but he is not reigning on earth yet. This is yet future. This is coming, and the earth will give him tribute. Philippians 2 will happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess everywhere in the universe in its yet future. So why does he bring this up? Because what's about to happen from verse chapter 6 through chapter 22 is a fulfillment of this. Pretty cool. Okay, so he intentionally wants us to go back and look at that prophecy. 
That's the first one. How about the root of David? We got a couple here. So he has to come from the, the tribe of Judah, but not just the tribe of Judah. He has to come from a guy named David, specifically from David. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 7, 16 through 17. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the visions Nathan spoke to David. The prophet Nathan directly to David, your house, your lineage will have the Messiah. Psalm 89, very similar. Once and for all have I sworn my holiness. I will not lie to David, verse 35, 36. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. There will be a king that comes from the line of David, not just Judah, but David, and he will reign forever. This is about to happen. This is about to come to fulfillment here. Isaiah 11, another one from there. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his, his resting place shall be glorious Yet future, that's coming. So that's two of the qualifications. Notice the next one. It says, if we go back to verse 5, it says this. It says, he has conquered. Now this is an interesting one. This is a fascinating one. As a matter of fact, I'm running out of time. It's too bad. Look at this word. To conquer or to overcome. This may look familiar to you. In our modern age, uh, there is a shoe company that's taken this word, or a, the root of this word, Nike. And Nike means victor, victory, actually. So they've taken it, and of course that has nothing to do with the Bible, what Nike did. It has to do, <laughs> to do with sports, and that, that same word in the Greek games that, that were played. But the idea here is that you're a winner, you're a victor, that we know it's not anything to do with athletics, it's something to do with the eternal, but... We see this word used, the nikaio, and here's where we see it from Christ. John 16, I have said these things to you, and he's talking to his apostles, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Peace, why? Because there's trouble in this world. John knows it then, and he knows it when he's in the heavenlies, and he's struggling. In the world, you will have tribulation, difficulty, not the great tribulation, not this seven years, but difficulty. But take heart, I have Nikaio, I've overcome, I've conquered, I've victored, I've won, I've overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4, we see a very similar language here. Little children, you are from God and have overcome, have overcome them. For he is, who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That God of this world, your victory doesn't come from your might, it comes from the conqueror's might. The Holy Spirit that is in you allows you to be able to overcome pretty impressive. And when we think about this, we are more than conquerors. Hyper, hooper, super victors, overwhelmingly conquering with Christ. Romans 8, 37. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We were in Romans 8 earlier. We're groaning for this to happen. The culmination of this chapter is we're struggling, we're, we're being persecuted, we're, we're being torn apart, all these things that are happening to us in this world. But don't forget your super victors, super overcomers because of Christ. Now, it's an incredible thing to consider. That's what we are in Christ, same Greek word. And then finally we have the lamb, verse, 20, or verse 6 of chapter 5. The lamb, 
He saw the next, we see John the Baptist saying this. I mentioned this earlier. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But I think Peter articulates it even better. This passage we get from 1 Peter 1 that really connects it to us. Knowing that you are ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. We've discussed that. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, for the sake of me, for the sake of the sinner. So we clearly see there is one who's worthy. And John is just being reminded by one who's had a chance to see his glorification, has had a chance to be in the presence of the Lord, can see a little bit more clearly what's going on compared to what John has seen, which seems amazing, but that's what will happen for us And the reaction here is, he's worthy. He's the one that is worthy of this. And as we go forward, I think this is a great quote from Amir Sarfati. John would have recognized Jesus in this role. He he understands who Jesus is. He had seen the Savior on the cross, torn, battered, bloody, as verse 6 talks about, one who was slain. The slain lamb was a reminder to everyone of the justice of what was about to take place. Chapter 6 on. Another reason for Jesus' coming is the suffering servant and the sufficient sacrifice was to visualize and show the full character of God. I like this. And all the powerful Lord on the throne who became one of us, as stated in Philippians 2, as we looked at earlier, perfect sovereignty and perfect humility. The one who rightfully accepts praise and honor and who willingly gave himself over to slaughter. The God who is love putting his life on or life on full display. That's what we're seeing, the full culmination. Lion of Judah, the conqueror, but don't forget, he was the lamb. Don't forget, that happened because of you. Pastor Kevin and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago. Will we be able to still see the scars like Thomas did? Will we see him in his glorified form like that? Now, I tend to think we will. And the reason I think that we will, and I think this, this visually, I think, as this happens and this progresses, as this church member is telling John, I think he sees Jesus like he saw him in, in the upper room after the resurrection. I tend to think he now realizes, oh, yeah, Jesus, that's right. My Savior, that's right. The one who loves me, that's right. And he's reminded of the truth from God's word that this, but I think, he's gonna, I think we're going to see his scars. And why? why? Why would he retain those so you remember why you're there? So you remember how you got there. And it isn't going to be anything on you. Remember, you're giving those crowns away. You're going to be continually reminded, the Savior loves me and he died for me. The one who was slain but who was conquered, the Lion of Judah, that's the reason I'm here. What a great reminder. And what is it going to do? It's going to cause us to want to worship The one worthy to take the scroll, it says, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who who was seated on the throne. The one who's seated on the throne. Now next week, our reaction to that is what verse 8 and forward is. And you can imagine what that will be when you come to this understanding like John does that there is one worthy and he's earned it and he's the only one worthy and he's my Savior And he loves me, and it's on full display. What do you think you're going to do in reaction to that? Well, you're going to worship. And we'll see that next week. But, you know, you should worship him today, too. Don't wait till next week. 
we've got another hour of church today. And if this doesn't inspire you to want to listen to his word and to sing his praise and to proclaim the truth after you leave this place, I don't know what it will. I don't know what will motivate you. But this is incredible stuff from our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants us to know his truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this text and we thank you for the reminder of who is worthy and that we are not. And yet you love us and your love and your life was on full display in this scene, but it's, it's in full display throughout your word. And we should react in worship today. And I pray that it dictates then how we act and react, how we talk, how we interact with one another. What we do with these words this week matters to you and it should matter to us. I pray that we are mourning and weeping over our own sin, desiring that we not do that anymore, that we, that we go to war with those sins. I pray that we are overwhelmed by your glory and your might and your worthiness and that it motivates us to serve you, to be a fellow servant like these incredible angels reminded John of. We're just servants of the Almighty God and we should worship you. I pray that as we go into this week that we don't wait for next week when we see all this incredible worship happen in the text that we do that today. We do that all week and that we dedicate our time and our our offerings of effort, whatever those are, talents and gifts, to your glory and not our own. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.